Good morning. Grace and peace to you all. We're again here from Joliet, Illinois, and I just want to say how gracious it is that the Lord is building His church, not just here, but where I come from. And it is wonderful to be able to come here and just find union in Christ with you all. To sing these songs and to make these confessions that we make, confessions of repentance and our faith on, in Christ, it, it is amazing that Christ is building His church, and not just in Joliet and not just here, but all over the world. And so the Lord's people are gathered on this day, and I'm very happy and joyful to be gathered here with you today on the Lord's Day. If you turn to your Bibles in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, again, that'll be the uh, passage of Scripture that we'll be working out of. Last week, we did primarily focus on the first three verses, and we dived in a little bit into um, like verses 4, 5, and 6. But today, we will be focused on starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, but for the sake of context, we'll read all of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you would join me in reading God's Word, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I'll be reading primarily out of the ESV today. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was caught up, or when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you, O God, for redeeming us in the work of salvation, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for redeeming us in Christ, for opening our minds to seeing a beautiful and wonderful Savior who saves us from our sins. 
But Lord, we come to you today to rest in Christ and to continue the work of sanctification as we rely on your word to minister the truth and the means of grace, to bring our focus and our attention on who you are. Oh God, be gracious to us and merciful to us. Allow us to hear your word and then to go from today making disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little recap of last week. Um, last week, we talked about uh, verses 1 through 3. And the, the sermon title really for last week and today is The po- Purpose and Power of Christ's Church. And last week, we, I sort of was trying to emphasize this idea that the truth isn't just some one-off thing that one-off person saw and sort of tried to communicate this in written form. No, these things are built on eyewitnesses that Jesus himself picked and chose. They bore witness to all the things that Jesus did and taught. These eyewitnesses were seen by many, one of those people being Luke, who gathered information from them and put it pen to paper in written form for someone like a man named Theophilus. And he did these things so that Theophilus, and so that we, through the grace of God, may have a certainty of faith in the, who Christ is, the things he did, and the things that he taught. One of the things that adds to purpose and power for Christ's church is the resurrection of Christ, where Luke says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. We serve, we believe, We proclaim a resurrected Christ. It is what they did. It is what we do because we have the word of truth. And so today, starting in verse 4, we continue on with that purpose and power of Christ's church. There are three main points that I'm going to be presenting before you. The three main points are going to be the purpose and power of Christ's church in the giving of the promise of the Father, the purpose and power of Christ's church in His ascension, and then finally, the purpose and power of Christ's church in His return. See, the gospel message doesn't just start and end with Christ's death and resurrection. It continues on to the truth of His being presented alive to many and to His ascension, which didn't happen behind closed doors. And then finally, to the promise of his return. So if you look at me with me at verse 4, the purpose and power of Christ's church is in the giving of the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. This phrase, and while staying with them, this phrase is a reminder that Jesus, not only over the span of 40 days, presented himself alive to people in front of his tomb, to his disciples in the upper room, to James and to Peter and to 500. He had intimate moments with his disciples where he presented himself alive to them. This word, uh, 
or, or, though there are many words in Scripture that go with that, where he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. Even Luke says in, Luke, in Acts, chapter one through, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them. He appeared to them. But this word here in Acts 1, verse 4, and while staying with them, is a unique Greek word. This Greek word, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And so it's, it, it, it is a unique word. The NASB words it this way, gathering them together. This is like an intimate, purposeful time where they are together with the Lord. And we must pay close attention to this because we want to ask ourselves, for what reason? And it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them. This is a command that the Lord is getting ready to give to his people, to his disciples. It's a command that comes with authority, resurrection authority. You know, these, these men are, are seeing the risen Lord, are with him. He's telling them that to, to, to go to Jerusalem, and it's important to ask why. Why did he order them? Why Jerusalem? So why Jerusalem? I have three sort of sum points as to the, the significance of Jerusalem from these, from these passages. The first one we'll see in Acts 1-4 where it says, one main point is that Christ commanded them to. The second one will be because it was in Jerusalem where the disciples were to receive the promise. That'll be in Acts chapter 1-4. verse 4. And in Acts 1-8, because the ministry of the apostles to be witnesses and ministers of the word was to begin in Jerusalem and then to work out from there. So three subpoints. Why Jerusalem? Well, because Jesus commanded them to go to Jerusalem. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This suffering Jesus who suffered many things. Luke uh, 7, 33-34 says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The same Jesus who suffered the betrayal of Judas, who suffered the denial of Peter, who suffered the brutal crucifixion from the Romans, who was betrayed by his own people who were to be expectant of the promised Messiah. The same Jesus is now the resurrected, resurrected Jesus who comes with that resurrection authority that now demands obedience of everyone. And so he commands his disciples to go to Jerusalem and to wait. The command is also in Luke chapter 24, verse 48 through 49. It says it this way, You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So did they go back to Jerusalem? Well, if you remember last week, still in Luke 24, it says, it says, and they worshiped him after his ascension, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
and were continually in the temple blessing God. They go to Jerusalem, and they don't just sit and wait. They go with great joy, and they go to the temple. They are blessing God with the hope of a promise that they must wait for. Not only Jesus has gone through change from suffering servant to a glorified and exalted Savior, these disciples are indeed a different people. They have been commissioned by Christ to be witnesses of him whose minds have been illuminated to understand the scriptures concerning the sufferings of Christ and his glory to follow. Remember again, we talked about this last week in Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These men are changed people who are now filled with great joy. And so why Jerusalem? Because the Lord commands them to. And they obey. And this isn't the only command that we see in scriptures. There are many commands we see in scripture that come from the Lord. Like it was said earlier, why do we do things the way that we do? Well, the moral law demands that of us, but also the commands, the positive commands of Christ tell us how to worship the Lord. We must worship and obey him. Second point, but why can, why can we ask this question again, why Jerusalem? Because, number two, because it was in Jerusalem where the disciples were to receive the promise of the Father. Again, verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, but to wait for the promise. Boys and girls, a promise. Has anybody ever promised you anything in life? <laughs> I mean, we make promises to each other, right, all the time. And unfortunately, these promises might fall short of coming to fruition because nothing can happen perfectly. Mom and dad might promise you that we'll go to Disney World this year. Things can change. But here, this promise is from the Father who keeps his promises. Remember, Jesus taught them of the Messiah from the Old Testament, those promises that the people that prophesied of these things never saw like the disciples saw. I mean, they saw it from afar, but they didn't, and they knew that they were prophesying for others. But this promise is the promise that they had to cling to by faith. And then these promises come to fruition. Well, yet there is a promise of the Father that the disciples are to be expecting and waiting for. So what is the promise of the Father? Well, verse 4 through 5 continues to tell us what that is. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Also, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers the apostles. If you look at Acts 1 verse 8, just a couple verses down, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And so what is the promise of the Father? Well, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is He who will be given to them, who will empower them. And much more can be said and should be said concerning what it means by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what is meant by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But let's look at a third point of, in this uh, verse 4 of what else we can say it is. If we look at verse 4, we can also say that it is the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the promise giver is the Father, right? And Jesus also said, you heard these things from me. And him who will be given is the Holy Spirit. We have three different persons working together as the Godhead. The book of Acts is first and foremost a testament to the ministry of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit working in and through the lives of the, in the, of the ministry of the apostles. The book of Acts, we tend to focus primarily on the apostles and the work that they did, but all throughout that, the spine of all of that is God who is working in them, in them and through them for his own glory. When Jesus says that the promise of the Father is that which you heard from me, it is important to recall exactly what Jesus said to his disciples concerning the promise of the Father. And so I have some passages here. If you want, you can turn to John chapter 14. We'll be working with some verses in 14, 15, and 16. This is, an, is not an exhaustive list of things that Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, but he did say in Acts that you heard this from me. So what are some of the things that the disciples should be familiar with when Jesus was talking to them about the promise of the Father? Well, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17 say, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The Holy Spirit is a helper. This word can be translated as comforter, as advocate. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A couple verses down from there, John chapter 14, verse 26. Again, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Here it says, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. He will teach you, the Spirit of truth from the previous verses, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, this time Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, this next phrase is, there's so much in this phrase, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit will bear witness about Christ. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
See the work of the Holy Spirit here, the helper, the advocate, who comes from the Father and who comes from the Son. He will bear witness about me. How does the Spirit bear witness about these things with the apostles? Well, He does it through the miracles that they do. He does it by bringing to remembrance the things that Jesus taught them. He does it by, we have the New Testament now. He inspires these men to write things yet again. Luke 24, 49, in the ESV, again, just hammering down, who, does, who sends the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So this is important why when we read this section in Acts, we see the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed concerning the Holy Spirit says this, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds, this is, he, he is sent and he comes from the Father. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The last verse here, John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. What did Jesus teach them about the Holy Spirit? What did they hear from Jesus concerning the Spirit of, and the promise of the Father? Jesus says, and when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is doing a mighty work now, now in our world. But at the time, this was a promise yet to be fulfilled for the disciples. And so why Jerusalem? Because it is where this promise of the Father was supposed to happen. If we look at verse 5 of Acts chapter 1, we can at least get a feel for what the Spirit, what this promise is not. Because in verse 5 he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized. So there's a difference here. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The baptism of John the, baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism that was coupled with repentance. It was this outward, really this outward purification that really should, as the teaching and the ministry of Christ began to come and happen, it pointed to a something greater than within the heart. And now we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is this regenerating power that brings us from death to life. And now the baptism that we proclaim is a sign of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where our, 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 our baptism points to Christ's death and resurrection, but it also points to we were dead in our sins and we are alive, which is the work of the Spirit. And so we see, what is, what is this promise of the Father? And we can say, well, also what it is not. It is different from the baptiz baptism of John the Baptist, where he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And if we think back to Luke 24, they, after he leaves, they go back with great joy, with this promise of, from, of that the Father will send them this Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know indeed that <laughs> it was a mere 10 days, right? We could say a mere 10 days from Ascension to Pentecost when this happens. But, you know, that could be a, a long time if you really think about it. He doesn't exactly tell them how many days, but he does say not many days from now. 
And so we know that they go back not knowing but being comforted with the promise keeper who again will, says this is a promise from the Father. And so they go back with exceeding joy, praising God and blessing him in the temple, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And that brings us to that third subpoint of purpose and power of Christ's church is in the giving of the promise of the Father and, we, and, and a- answering the question of why Jerusalem It is because the ministry of the apostles to be these witnesses, these ministers of the word, it was to begin in Jerusalem. See, they're outside of Jerusalem right now, where Christ was crucified, where Christ is buried. Christ presented himself alive to many people. Christ ascends from the mountain outside of Jerusalem. Here he tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait. But he tells them further why. If you look at verses 6 through 8, uh, we'll, we'll begin there to make this point. We'll have to address some questioning from the disciples on their part, but by God's grace, Jesus graciously reigns them back in. Verse 6 says, so when they had come together, they asked, they asked. Again, this, then when they come together, this is another intimate moment. might be the same, it might be a different one, but that word so connects the promise of the Father to what they're getting ready to ask. I mean, they, you know, Jesus said, the promise of the Father which you heard, and I just read to you some passages that come with authority and power. The Holy Spirit is fully, is part of the Godhead. And in their minds, they ask this question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father that he had taught them. And Jerusalem is the city of Israel, right? All the kings of Israel come and ruled and reigned in Israel. And so they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And his response is very interesting. His response can be seen in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times, or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. He doesn't correct them or discourage them from wanting to understand the kingdom of God. If you look back in verse 3, it says, He presented Himself alive to them after His sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I mean, the, the gospel, the narratives there include Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus doesn't correct them on their desire to want to know or see or even expect the kingdom of God. He corrects them on the time and the seasons. Jesus is going to send them a helper who will teach them and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus taught them, including the things of the kingdom of God. But it is the time and the seasons concerning the kingdom of God that is, the, the, that, is that which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The only time frame that they're supposed to be concerned with is going to Jerusalem and waiting for the promise of the Father. And the time thing that they're focused on here is that broad God in his kingdom. And that is 
a thing that the Father is to know, that is a thing that we must be reminded about. When we consider what we'll talk about here in a little bit is the return of Christ. This is part of the kingdom of God, but the time and the seasons are unknown to us. There are things that we ought to want to know and can know, but the time and seasons are not the concern of us. They weren't the concern of the disciples either. And if they were to teach the things that Jesus taught them, and Jesus corrects them on time and seasons, then you must know that it, we fall under that same authority, that the time and seasons are of the concern of the Father alone. Matthew Henry has a good comment on this section. He says, They were earnest in asking about that which their master never directed or encouraged them to seek. Our Lord knew that his ascension and the teaching of the Holy Spirit would soon end these expectations and therefore only gave them a rebuke. But it is a caution to his church in all ages to take heed of a desire of forbidden knowledge. Jesus doesn't discourage them for seeking the kingdom of God, but from trying to know times and seasons. Verse 8, but you will receive power. This is his response to them after correcting them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The ministry of the apostles is to concern themselves solely with being eyewitnesses of the things that they have seen and of the things that Christ has taught them. It is limited there, that it's so, but it doesn't end there. But that is the baseline of the ministry of the apostles, to bear witness to the things that Jesus did, who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. Let's look at uh, our second main point as we continue reading. The purpose and power of Christ's church is in his ascension is in his ascension. And I have three sort of sum points under here. I'm going to say them here now for the, the sake of just keeping track with, with where I'm going. But the three sub points here would be the ascension of Jesus marks the final physical act that Christ does here on earth and that his apostles bear witness. So up to this point, it is the final physical act that Christ does. Number two, the ascension of Jesus guarantees the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. That was number two. Number three, the ascension of Jesus extends the exaltation of Christ from here to the right hand of the Father. And so with that first one, the ascension of Jesus marks the final physical act that the apostles were to bear witness of. Regarding the work and ministry of the Messiah, it begins at his baptism by the John the Baptist, and it ends with his ascension, with the centrality of the work of Christ being his death and resurrection. If we look at just a couple of verses down, Acts chapter 15, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 22 we see here that Peter stood up among the brothers in those days. And he said to them, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, he goes on to talk about who Judas was, but he says, for it was written in the book of Psalms, verse 20, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So what do they do? Verse 21, Peter says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. This is the ascension. One of these men must become with us eyewitnesses to his resurrection. The ascension of Jesus marks the final physical act. See, Jesus' physical act of ministry began at John the Baptist, where he was baptized. It includes the things that he did, the things that he taught. It definitely includes his crucifixion and his erection, his resurrection. And then it, and here it says that it ends with his ascension. The work of Christ is important. When you comprehend these things, when you think about Christ, for sure we must run to the cross. Could our sins were nailed there and we are forgiven there. And our Savior was not left to the grave. He rose from the dead three days later. But it also includes his ascension. This is vital when we think about who Jesus is and what he did. Remember again, Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. This is why the apostles were chosen. This is what the apostles were to concern themselves with. This is what the apostles were to be eyewitnesses of, beginning in Jerusalem and then into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Second subpoint is the ascension of Jesus guarantees the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. When we think about the purpose and power of Christ's church, he had to ascend for many reasons, one of them being so that he could send a helper with the Father. So this promise of the Father, this Holy Spirit proceeds or is sent from the Father and the Son, it was necessary that Christ must ascend. He says in John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Remember last week, I, was, I sort of hinted at this idea of like, Christ was here, he's crucified, and they scatter. They are worried. They are truly not believing yet. And then Christ is resurrected, and he shows himself physically. But then he points again to the scriptures, to what the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms said concerning this, this Messiah, that he must suffer and then enter into subsequent glories. And their minds are open to these things. Their minds are open to these things. And yet again, we hear that Jesus must go into heaven so that he could send the helper, so that the Father would send the helper. This was necessary. He's going to leave them again, just like he left them when he was crucified. But he came back and spent 40 days with them, and now he must leave again. And remember the response again in Luke, they go away with joy, with great joy, praising God. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 33 say, this is when Peter is testifying, after the Holy Spirit has indeed come upon them, 
he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. See here, Peter's confessing that thing that Jesus taught them, where I must go, because if I don't go, then the Helper will not come, because he will not send them. The power and purpose of Christ's church is in his ascension also. Because in his ascension, the Father and the Son send the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. The third sum point, the ascension of Jesus extends the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father, like I just read, where Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. When we talk about Christ's resurrection, he is glorified and exalted, highly exalted in that. All authority, he says in Matthew, has been given to me. All authority has been given to Christ. The reason why the exaltation shifts to heaven and over everything is because it's rooted in who Christ is and what he has done. It doesn't end here on this earth. The exaltation it goes to the right hand of the Father because the exaltation is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, extends and continues the, the exaltation of Christ. So when we worship Christ, when we sing these songs, we must proclaim not just his sufferings and not just his glories in his resurrection, but that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. On the day of Pentecost, there are thousands around the apostles witnessing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by the Father, who, has, who was sent, that is, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And Peter says to them that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And so when we think about the power and the purpose of Christ's church, we can think of Christ being exalted at the right hand of the Father, which, is, which comes from him leaving and ascending there. I have just a couple of things here if we want to consider what Jesus is doing in heaven. I have just a few passages here because Jesus did indeed leave and there's a ministry that began with Jesus leaving and sending the Holy Spirit. But I'll just go through a couple of these. I have here he is exercising authority over everything. If we look at Psalm 110, which Psalm 110 is actually in the passage where I was talking about um, where Peter says that he's exalted at the right hand. He does mention this passage, but Psalm 110 says this, verses 1 through 2, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Ephesians 1, 15 through 21 also says, For this reason, Paul says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope 
of which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What is Jesus doing in heaven? Ruling and reigning. He is highly exalted over everything. He is also at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is in heaven preparing a place for us. Remember, he says in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He is acting as head over his church in heaven as well. Ephesians 1, through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is all in all. See, the purpose and power of Christ's church, when we think of his ascension, it comes with so much more weight. And these are things that Jesus taught them. And these are things in which they also taught us these are things that they confessed. Christ isn't, his work has not stopped with his ascension. I mean, physically here on earth, he's not here. He is at the right hand of the Father, but he is still doing a work. Our third and final point in the purpose and power of Christ's church is in the return of Christ. The purpose and power of Christ's church is in the return of Christ. And I have, again, three subpoints for here. I'll say them to you first. The purpose and power of Christ's church is in knowing that it is the same Jesus who has ascended. That that same Jesus is the same Jesus who will come again. The second one is the purpose and power of Christ's church is in knowing that Jesus will come from heaven. And then the third one will be the purpose and power of Christ's church is in knowing that he will return. So if we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, our last two verses. They read, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in, in white robes. These two men, who are these two men? Not to do, take away from the focus of Christ. The word here for man is not the same word used for angel, but it is the same word that was used for Moses and Elijah when they appeared with Jesus at his transfiguration. But what should be known at least about these two men is that these men are meant to stand out from the rest of the disciples because they are clothed in white robes. 
And so what they have to say here is, is important. And so let's, what did they say? They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So our first sub-point, the purpose and power of Christ church, is in knowing that it is the same Jesus who ascended, that same Jesus is the one who will come again. His return, just as it was when he ascended, will be bodily and visibly. This resurrected Jesus ate with them. He showed them his hands, his feet, his pierced sides. They touched and they knew him. They recognized him after their minds were open to it. This same Jesus is the same one who will come again. Yes, he is now glorified and exalted, but it was the same Jesus, now resurrected, who still bears those wounds on his body, his hands and his feet and his side for you and me. Only now he is alive, never to die again, for he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. His return will be bodily and visibly. And these two men standing next to the disciples who are gazing into heaven assure us by saying, this Jesus, the one who has ascended and the cloud has taken him up, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Al Mohler says, according to historic evangelical faith, the exaltation of Christ includes his resurrection, his ascension, his session with the Father, which is that time of now, and his glorious return. That same exalted Christ will come again in like manner, but with a whole new world to be, for us to behold. Number two, the purpose and power of Christ's church is in knowing that Jesus will come from heaven. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is important for us because there are many false messiahs that have come since Christ's ascension. A simple this isn't a joke, this is true. A simple Wikipedia search of a list of people who claimed to be Jesus, at least on Wikipedia, goes as far back as the 17th century. But know this for sure, I mean, this goes from before Christ, during the time of Christ, and after his ascension. It is important to know that the same Jesus who went up to heaven will come back to us from heaven. If we look at this list of false messiahs, I, I just picked two because I really want you to hound in. When I say false, false messiah, I literally mean people who claim to be Jesus incarnate or the Son of God or the second coming of Christ. You might not be aware of these people, but they, they are not far and few between. There are many of them. Jim Jones, the founder of People's Temple, which started off as an offshoot of the mainstream Protestant sect, before becoming a personality cult at, as times went on, he claimed to be the, reincarnate, the reincarnation of Jesus. This was in the 1960s and the 1970s. He had many followers. But even now in our time in the Philippines, there is Apollo Kil, Kilbaloy. I've heard a lot of podcasts on this guy. This, this man claims to be the appointed son of God, and he has millions of followers right now. Or you can have somebody like David Shaler, 
who was a former MI5 officer and a whistleblower who is currently has a series of videos on YouTube claiming to be Jesus, although he has not built up a noticeable group of followers. Whether they, these people are successful in fooling some or many or millions, the eight, these, these men say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when we think of the power and purpose of Christ's church, we, that, that power and purpose comes with recognizing false messiahs and speaking openly and truthfully against them while proclaiming the, the biblical risen and ascended who will come again, Jesus Christ, as the true messiah. Jesus says, in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He goes on to say, for behold, I have told you in advance so that if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, this bodily and visibly return of Christ, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Indeed, the glory in which he comes will be even greater than when he left, but he will indeed come from heaven, from the right hand of the Father where he currently resides at his side. And then when we think of the purpose and power of Christ's return, we can say it is in knowing indeed that Christ will return. Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All the promises concerning the Messiah up to this point have come to fruition. In time, when we think about times and seasons, the prophets of the Old Testament, they understood that they weren't prophesying for them, but they held on to those promises by faith. We too are in a time and a season where we are waiting for the return of Christ. But there is power in knowing that there is a promise given. These two men say, men of Galilee, in the same way, he will come. So rest assured and be long expectant of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I have three applications here. The first one being for the unsaved. I again implore you, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter again says in Acts chapter 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When you are faced with the real Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come, as promised, who 
who has died as promised, who has risen as promised, who has ascended as promised, who has sent the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, and where the promise stands that he will come again. The reality is, is that unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. In Orthodox Catechism, question number two says, what must a Christian believe? And the answer is, is the gospel, right? So what is the gospel? Well, question 23 answers this question. And it's sort of a summary of the Nicene Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The gospel doesn't end with Christ's resurrection. It includes his ascension, and it guaranteed it includes his coming again. And so for, the, for, the, for those who are not saved, repent and believe in the gospel. For the Christian, an application here would be to trust and rest in the faithfulness of God. I mean, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is full of Luke just notating the story of Christ, the things that he taught them, the things that he did leading up to his ascension and his promise of the, the Holy Spirit coming and then him ascending and then these two men saying, men of Galilee, the same, the same Jesus who has gone into heaven, he will come again. And so if we can look at scripture and see that Christ has fulfilled all the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and there are still expectations for Christ to fulfill, trust, hope, and rest in the faithfulness of God. And then the last application is share the whole gospel. Don't be ashamed. I hate to say don't be ashamed, but a lot of times it might just be because the gospel is just full, full of truths concerning who Christ is and what he has done. And the gospel for you and me, I mean, we are saved and yet we are to be growing in our knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And it might be that sometimes we forget the power of the ascension of Christ in light of his future coming in, in glory. Christ had to ascend. Well, first of all, Christ had to come. Christ had to die. Christ had to be resurrected from the dead. Christ had to ascend. Christ sent the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son sends the Holy Spirit, and Christ will come again. And so when you think of the gospel, embrace all of that and then proclaim it, the entirety of what Christ has done and what he has taught us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, O Lord, that we stand on a firm foundation, but what great a foundation it is when we consider all that your word teaches us concerning the person and work of Christ. 
Lord, we are, we are guaranteed salvation on that foundation. And so help us, O Lord, to have an assurance of salvation that longs to see a Messiah to come. But in the meantime, that longs to proclaim the truths of who Christ is and what he has done. Lord, we ask that by your grace, we would go into this coming week proclaiming these truths to ourselves, to our wives, our husbands, to our children, to our neighbors, to those that we work with. Lord, give us opportunities to further the ministry of the eyewitnesses, the building up of your church, the, the throwing of the seed of the gospel everywhere so that the spirit of truth the helper, the comforter, the convictor of souls will do his work of regenerating hearts and bringing them to saving faith in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.